Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, certified prosthetist, 3D printing enthusiast, and owner of Ascent Fabrication. Fabrication Friday is an all-around fun time where I talk about 3D printing applications, conduct interviews with industry leaders, and much more. Come join us every Friday for an informational discussion around the evolution of the additive manufacturing field and how we utilize various digital workflows and 3D printing methods in our daily work at Ascent Fabrication. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's session of Fabrication Friday. I'm your host, Joe Fairley with Ascent Fabrication, and today I'll be flying solo to chat about some FDM 3D printing best practices. You might even hear the humming in the background here as a few of my printers uh, print away this afternoon. So thanks for taking the time out of the day today with us uh, to chat about some best practices for FDM style 3D printing. If you're not familiar with FDM, uh, the acronym, it's Fused Deposition Modeling. Uh, it was a term coined by Stratasys uh, back when they were first coming into the 3D printing scene and patenting this particular form of 3D printing itself. Um, due to the patent, uh, there was another term that was coined as some 3D printers became more mainstream and commercialized after the patent ran out. Um, so you have FFF, Fused filament fabrication. Uh, very, very similar in nature. Uh, it's all about the 3D printing spooled filament uh, that we are laying down layer by layer. So FDM, FFF, interchangeable, 3D printing overall is the umbrella. Um, today we're focusing on FDM uh, because primarily uh, Ascent Fabrication has been focused on FDM 3D printing we are also getting into some multi-jet fusion or MJF and selective laser sintering or SLS. Uh, might as well drop all the acronyms on you today. Uh, but we're going to be focusing today on some of the best practices for FDM 3D printing that we have learned and implemented um, over the past eight years of our experiences in 3D printing. So the first topic of choice here um, Obviously, you have to have a 3D printer in order to, to 3D print something. So that's your first choice is what printer are you looking to purchase? Um, are you very, very new into the uh, 3D printing scene and just want to learn more about uh, what exactly is 3D printing in general? Uh, how do you actually extrude plastic, solid plastic going from melted plastic at what different temperatures and speeds and whatnot? Uh, what different design choices would you have for different types of printers? Um, what different printers have the capabilities of printing those devices that you would like to print? You know, some of these questions uh, should be popping up in your head when you are looking at a printer of choice. For instance, uh, looking first at the build volume, you know, looking at the size of the thing that you want to print. Uh, is very key into what printer you're going to even look at in the first place. Uh, does it have a 300 by 300 by 400 build volume, which is a pretty now a standard larger size um, FDM uh, build volume for some of these lower end consumer 3D printers? Um, or are you looking at something uh, more on the large build volume scale? Um, you know, looking at those considerations would be the first place to start. You know, where are you going to source that printer from? 
Is it coming from, you know, your local country? Is it coming internationally? Uh, what other uh, charges and customs imports or other fees that you might need to be uh, aware of as you take a look at what 3D printer you should first uh, invest into? So investing into a printer um, can take a lot of different forms. You know, of course, you could purchase a printer outright online. Um, a lot of the low-end consumer printers are very readily available. Um, you know, take, for instance, the Artillery Sidewinder X2, um, a pretty superb printer, actually, for, um, for what it is. I think Artillery did a really nice job. You know, I had been kind of watching a few uh, other people in our prosthetics and orthotics industry start to use uh, this particular printer and having some great success. Um, I just happened to come across it uh, in my searches for different filaments um, on uh, particularly 3D Print Life's uh, website, actually. If you haven't uh, heard of 3D Print Life, go check them out. Um, they have the artillery for $300. Uh, it's a really nice uh, price point for a low-end FDM printer. And uh, we were starting to get into printing some out of the prosthetics and orthotics industry uh, products and projects. So looking for kind of just that, you know, entry point printer to kind of service some of those lower end projects that we were getting into. So the artillery is a great choice, again, because of the very large build volume, 300, 300 by 400, um, and also a pretty robust machine has a very kind of heavily weighted uh, base so that it helps to minimize a lot of the uh, vibrations that you feel in kind of this low end um, structured, you know, three bar uh, printer that we see just with the two vertical uprights and a horizontal uh, bar going across that kind of core XY printer where the bed actually moves um, with the print itself. Um, so as the bed moves and the print moves, you get some uh, shaking that occurs at taller build heights. So that's uh, definitely nice to see a very heavily weighted um, lower pl platform on the artillery to help mitigate some of that, um, some of that uh, movement that goes on at those, those taller build heights. So uh, looking at the artillery on the low end of things is a, is a great choice. Um, does have direct drive extrusion um, so again, looking at different printer choices, you're going to look at what different types of filament you're going to want to print. Um, are you going to have a Bowden system where the motor pushing the filament is a far distance away from the actual extruder itself? Or are you looking to print? Um, so that would be mainly for, you know, more rigid materials. It works well with um, the Ultimaker line of printers is um, very good at this type of extrusion. And then versus the flexible filaments, you know, looking at your TPUs, um, you know, you really just don't have any other choice but to go with the direct drive system because you have um, basically the, the physics of pushing a rope and, you know, pushing a rope, that rope is going to go every which way except for straight, um, you know, so those uh, Bowden systems don't quite work out uh, very well um, through most printers with flexible filament. So having that direct drive uh, on, on the artillery is just another added bonus. Again, for $300, it's a really nice entry point for people who are looking to get into 3D printing in general. 
Um, but, you know, we're actually printing some pretty high-end uh, patient end-use devices on it as well. Um, prosthetic covers, as well as foot orthotics um, and flexible inner sockets with uh, our choice material, Vario Shore by Color Fab. We absolutely love that material. Uh, makes for a really nice lightweight design uh, and some nice flexible uh, inner cushions there between the walls. So again, you have, you know, material choice kind of affecting your printer choice, uh, kind of affecting your material choice kind of back on each other, um, you know, whether it's direct drive or Bowden system, um, you know, extrusion. The other thing to think about is if you particularly want to have dual extrusion, you could have dual extrusion where there are two nozzles, two hot ends, um, actually uh, simultaneously printing at the same time through what's called IDEX extrusion, um, where independent dual extrusion, where both of those extruders are extruding at one time. Um, or then you have kind of the more conjoined dual extrusion, um, such as the Raise 3D platforms like the Pro 2 Plus, Pro 3, Pro 3 Plus. Um, you know, those are wonderful printers if you are particularly wanting to print some more intricate designs that require support material. Um, having a different material for that support structure can help in many ways. Um, so, for instance, our polypropylene filament through PP Print uh, typically will print on the left side nozzle with our Raise 3D Pro 3 Plus, we'll print polypropylene out of a one millimeter nozzle. On the right side, we'll use a 0.6 millimeter nozzle for the particular piece support material. And what that helps um, in our printing methods is to uh, print a raft and support structure underneath, say, a lower extremity orthosis, like an AFO, ankle foot orthosis, or SMO, super malleolar orthosis. Still going on with these acronyms today. Um, to just better support that particular device underneath that non-flat surface. Um, so, you know, that's always a consideration if you're going to want to print uh, dual materials, you know, printing with two, two nozzles is extremely beneficial um, if you're looking to print two different materials at the same time. Um, now, there's a couple different ways that, you know, that could potentially happen with um, some other printers, um, you know, with different colors. Um, you know, I think that's just starting to uh, come about from companies like Bamboo and Mosaic. Um, you know, but again, material choices, um, different printer um, add-on choices, you know, whether you want that large build volume, small build volume, low entry point, low cost, or if you're going all out and going for a uh, more industrial FDM machine like the Filament Innovations Icarus or Ares pellet system even, um, you know, if you're wanting to print really big parts, uh, definitely check out Filament Innovations. They have some extremely robust 3D printers that are um, prime time for production status, 3D printing. So on the small end of things, you've got the Artillery Sidewinder, Creality Series, um, quite a few others that are the more, you know, desktop 3D printing systems and a lot more accessible for, um, you know, this consumer level status. On the kind of middle range, you have something like the Raise 3D uh, Pro 3 Plus um, that's going to be a little bit more involved. 
um, and have some other features that some of these lower end printers do not have. Um, and then at the you know more industrial scale, um, having something like filament innovations where you're going to be printing uh, very fast, very large objects, um, which you could also get some pretty intricate objects as well. You know, they run with the dies design hot ends um, with the Typhoon system where you could have a 0 0.6, 0 0.9, um, 1.2 or 2.5 millimeter nozzle. Uh, they are, uh, you know, run through the full gambit of different size nozzles. So you could on the Icarus with a really large build volume, get some very intricate prints with smaller nozzle sizes. Um, so looking at, again, what particularly you want to print um, is going to really drive your decision making when you're looking at a certain printer. Um, now getting a little bit more into the material choice. Um, are you looking to print something that is flexible, something that would be extremely rigid, semi-rigid? You know, what are those applications that you're going to be using that printer for, do you want that printer to be able to print multiple different materials? You know, a direct drive system is not just good for uh, flexible filaments, but you could also print rigid filaments on it as well. PLA, PETG, polycarbonate, um, you know, some other, uh, some other pl harder plastics, you know, you could obviously uh, still be able to print those uh, more uh, rigid materials with a direct drive system. Then some other considerations around materials, is the material hygroscopic or not? Uh, does it actually absorb moisture from the air when it is exposed to the air? Uh, we kind of call it the danger zone of anything over 40% 40, 40 humidity level. Uh, that filament is going to suck up moisture like a sponge pretty quickly. Um, I say pretty quickly, that's definitely within uh, 24 hours, your filament will need to be dried. Um, so taking a look at that, you know, if you have a spool of PLA, PETG, TPU uh, that has been sitting out for a while, or even if it's been in a closed system, you know, there still could be leaks um, where you're not uh, fully drying it or keeping it dry well enough. Um, so having a some kind of drying system is always extremely beneficial for successful printing. Um, some things that you might notice when you do have wet filament could be in an inconsistent extrusion, um, a lot of stringing, uh, and actually see some bubbles appear inside the print itself where that moisture is evaporating when that filament is heated up and then creating air bubbles within the print. Um, other than that, your, your print might look a little bit more cloudy. Um, and it really just won't have the best surface finish. Um, you also hear some snapping or popping at the nozzle as that moisture is actually evaporated over time. Um, so again, looking at some kind of filament drying system, if you're looking to print with hygroscopic materials, which are kind of the majority of materials that are out there right now in the commercial level uh, 3D printing scene, you know, again, PLA, PETG, TPUs, you're going to want to dry that filament. Um, even if a filament manufacturer has the bag sealed, you know, vacuum sealed, airtight with a silica packet, um, you don't you don't know how long that filament was sitting out before they did that, um, you know, or how long it has been sitting in there. And then if the seal's broken, 
you know, you could still have some moisture uh, from the air get into that material. So definitely having a filament drying system is useful for successful 3D printing. Um, I would absolutely suggest the Print Dry Pro. Um, that system is extremely, extremely reliable. We've been using it for over a year now um, and can accommodate up to three and a half kilograms uh, spools. So definitely on the larger side of the spools uh, that you're going to use, definitely at the consumer level, um, you know, more industrial printing, you might get up to five kgs, eight kgs. Um, at that level, those will not fit in the Print Dry Pro, and then you'll have to find some other, you know, heating system. You could get a any kind of um, oven that would um, fit those um, those size spools. Some kind of dehumidifying system, you know, will absolutely do the trick. So filament drying, whether that material is hygroscopic or not, uh, taking up moisture from the air. Then you have you know, polypropylenes and copolys, which do not uh, absorb moisture from the air. So those materials you could have sitting out um, for months, if not you know, a couple of years at a time, and really not have to dry that material at all. Um, you certainly can dry it. There are you know, specific temperature and hour long settings for how long you should be drying that filament. Um, the Print Dry Pro actually comes with a suggested um, temperature levels and um, amounts of time that you should be uh, drying your filament. So that's very, very helpful. So taking a look at the printer choices, material choices, what do you want to print? How flexible should it be? How rigid should it be? Just because you're printing with TPU doesn't mean that the print has to be flexible. Uh, you could have a print that is 100% infill, and that TPU part is going to be extremely robust and rigid, um, depending on your design and the, the thickness that you have of the actual design itself. Um, so that's something to take into consideration. Um, you know, very high um, scratch resistance and tear resistance. You know, if you're printing TPU well, um, and it's 100% infill, you are not going to be tearing those layers apart. Um, we found that actually printing with much, much lower cooling settings with TPU and printing a little bit slower has been doing a very nice job with our TPU prints um, to be able to get uh, great interlayer adhesion um, for those particular devices. Um, so we've talked a little bit about you know, kind of the actual design for additive manufacturing in some of these choices as well, you know, DFAM. Design for additive manufacturing, that term comes into uh, kind of looking at this from a few different standpoints. So you have to actually design for your printer, design for your material, design for your nozzle size that you're using, um, and design for, you know, of course, the particular product and its purpose. So there's a lot of different considerations on, you know, what particular designs uh, you'd be coming up with. You know, there's, there's definitely uh, nuances to those designs that could be tweaked a little bit over time um, in order to, you know, really achieve the characteristics of the part you're looking for. Um, so let's talk about nozzle size. And um, at the uh, lower end, you've got, you know, 0 0.4, 0 0.4 millimeters, 0 0.6, 0 0.8, 1.0, uh, 
um, 0.9 as well on some systems, uh, 1.2, 1.5 even, uh, 2.0, 2.5. Um, I've, I've seen it all. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different uh, nozzle sizes that you could choose from. You know, one thing that we found from using the Film Innovations machine uh, over the past year and a half now um, is that if you're spitting out more material at one time, um, you're actually increasing that that bond, that interlayer bond, because of that thermal mass. You know, the actual um, thermal heat that is given off by that layer um, when the nozzle comes back around to the same area to deposit filament in that same location. The more filament that you are depositing at once, the longer it takes to cool. Um, so that's a, a pretty big consideration on you know, how fast you're actually printing, what your temperature and cooling settings are at. Um, you know, so thinking about the uh, robust nature of the parts that you're looking for, um, you really might want to err on the higher side of the nozzle sizes, you know, 1.0 uh, versus a 0.4 millimeter nozzle when you're talking about um, really trying to achieve the highest strength uh, that you're looking for. You know, with the, um, let's just take a look at um, if we're printing a three millimeter thick um, cylinder, right? Just a cylinder for all geometric purposes here. If you have a one millimeter nozzle, that means that you could take three perimeters around that cylinder. And if those layers are 0% overlapping, they're just barely right next to each other. Um, you're not actually really achieving any inter-wall, inter-perimeter strength. Um, you, you really should be overlapping your layers by about 10 to 15%, um, sometimes more depending on the, the application and the material that you're using, how much it's actually oozing out of that nozzle, um, and your, your extrusion multipliers or your, your flow rates. Um, but if we think about our cylinder example, you know, with a one millimeter nozzle with three passes uh, around that, uh, that cylinder, you know, having the overlap percentage of, let's say, 15% um, is really going to help that inner layer bonding um, and inter-wall, inter-perimeter bonding with your, uh, with your device. So if we think about those layers overlapping by 15% of one millimeter, um, you know, we're talking, you know, that three millimeter wall ends up being about 2.7, 2.85 millimeters thick, actually. So, you know, having those layers overlap, um, you kind of have to maybe account for some of those percentages and your nozzle width in your design. Um, you know, say, for instance, again, we're looking at some, uh, we want a little bit more detail. Say we want a little bit more detail than our our one millimeter nozzle, we're going to go down to a 0.6 millimeter nozzle. Um, now, maybe the uh, cylinder that we were going to create isn't three millimeters, let's say it's 2.4 millimeters. You know, having an exact um, multiplier of your nozzle width is going to help with the overall um, slicing of that part. So looking at again, you know, what kind of infill percentage that you're looking for with the print, how many walls, how many perimeters um, you're actually going to be printing. 
is going to be directly related to the thickness of whatever your part is going to be. Um, taking into account the nozzle size once again for layer height. Um, so layer height uh, would kind of affect that surface finish. Sl smaller, you know, less layer height is going to give you uh, kind of a more smooth surface finish. Um, the kind of rule of thumb to start, of, start on would be half your nozzle size for a layer height. Um, so at a one millimeter nozzle with a 0.5 millimeter layer height um, would be a good starting point for um, trying to achieve good interlayer adhesion. Um, going above that layer height, you're gonna start to have uh, possibly some worse interlayer adhesion. Um, again, depending on the material, the temperature that you're printing at, the speed that you're printing at, the amount of cooling, um, you might not have as good of interlayer adhesion with a larger layer height of more than half your nozzle width. Um, you can definitely go down um, about 10% to that, about 0.4 for a one millimeter nozzle. Uh, we're looking at a, a 0.3 or um, you know, 0.2 millimeter, 0.25 millimeter layer height for a 0.6 nozzle is certainly fine. Um, but once you get above that 50% uh, mark, um, you're really kind of worrying about, you know, whether or not those layers are going to be well bonded. So layer height is a consideration in uh, overall print speed as well. Uh, the, the taller the layer heights, the uh, faster you're actually going to uh, be printing, be finishing the actual print. Uh, smaller layer heights are going to require more time. Um, same thing goes with the nozzle sizes, right? The smaller the nozzle, the longer the print, larger the nozzle, quicker the print. Um, you know, we're able to uh, either print some pretty intricate prosthetic covers um, or other designs with a 0.6 millimeter nozzle. Um, but those are going to take about 20 to 30 hours to print uh, with the TPU versus printing something in PETG um, say a test socket or polypropylene um, preparatory socket for prosthetics um, with the Filament Innovations um, 2.5 millimeter nozzle, you know, you're going to be printing at a one millimeter layer height and going to be printing something out in an hour to three hours, three and a half hours. So, you know, looking at those differences in the size of the object that you're printing and how fast you'd like that object to be finished obviously are some of those considerations based on what you're actually wanting to get out of the printer and out of your designs. So looking to at the extrusion width or the line width, you know, how much material are you pushing out of the nozzle at one time? Um, this could kind of overlap a little bit with the um, overlap percentage between perimeters and um, infill to perimeters. So if you're extruding at 100% uh, line width, you know, that's, that's taking into account the um, size of your nozzle. So if you have a 0.6 millimeter nozzle and you have 100% um, extrusion or line width, you know, you're going to be having an extrusion width of 0.6 millimeters. Um, there really isn't a huge benefit to go much less than your nozzle width, I would say, stick with your nozzle width and change your design based on that um, or change your nozzle based on your design. 
if you have a thicker print, you know, you might want to go with a larger nozzle size versus a much more detailed, thinner print that's going to need a thinner nozzle size. Um, so taking that into account, you know, again, I said it could um, directly relate to the overlap percentage. Uh, so if you have 110% extrusion width or line width, that means you're taking into account um, basically over extruding. You're pushing out more material um, than that nozzle width is actually um, you know, slated for, which can get a little hairy if you're uh, you know, worrying about the, um, the cleanness of your print, how, how nice that print is going to come out. So you know, with the Filament Innovations High Flow um, Typhoon, from Dyes Design with a 2.5 millimeter nozzle, we're actually able to extrude, over extrude, up to four or sometimes even five millimeters of line width. Um, that's gonna depend upon your, your layer height and maybe your Z offset as well, how close that nozzle is actually to the bed. Um, you know, that there's another uh, rabbit hole to go down. Uh, how far away is your nozzle from the bed itself um, in order to kind of over extrude or um, kind of push out that layer, smush that layer to a, a further width than you're actually uh, telling the slicer to do. So if you have the nozzle a little bit closer to the bed, you're going to be um, kind of maybe over extruding a little bit, pushing out that layer a little bit more than it um, than it's really kind of intended to be. Um, so taking that into account, you know, as your Z offset, you know, how far away is your nozzle from your print bed? That is a very very key um, thing to think about when you first start your print. You're really going to want to home your printer first and then get into your Z offset, make sure your Z offset is appropriate for what you're printing. So talking about nozzle size, layer height, layer width, different material choices, and this specific designing for additive manufacturing, um, with this material choice in mind, now we're kind of getting into the nitty gritty of, well, what temperatures do I actually have to melt that material at in order to um, get the material to do what I want it to do? How, how fast can I cool that material to be able to um, come back around on the next layer and print faster, just simply print faster. Um, you know, those are, those qualifications are going to be different for every material. Um, some of the more rigid materials will cool faster than some of the more flexible mater materials. So that's something to take into account. Um, some flexible materials, some different uh, rubbers and TPUs, TPEs, um, actually might need zero cooling, no fan percentage on whatsoever uh, in order to try to um, make sure those layers inter um, interlayer bonding, you know, that, that interlayer bonding is actually good. Um, this is the same thing for polycarbonate. Polycarbonate, uh, a more rigid material, but you really don't want to use any kind of high cooling percentage um, and might want to just print a little bit more slowly uh, in order to make sure those layers bond really, really well. So with the, um, you know, keeping that in mind, um, say you have a, um, for arbitrary numbers sake, we'll just say a 10 centimeter diameter circle. 
and you're printing at a certain speed with, um, with TPU and you're going around that circle at a certain speed, um, say for arguments purposes, it's 30 millimeters per second. Well, now if you go down in circumference to say half of that, um, you know, uh, then you're actually looking at wanting to slow down your print um, for those different circumferences so that your material has the chance to actually cool during that amount of time. If you don't do that, if you don't adjust your speed per the circumference of the object that you're printing, then you'll have some very messy prints. Um, the layers are going to start to warp and ooze and stringing, and it's just not a good scene. Um, so really taking that into account, your different, um, the different amounts of time, particularly the time it takes for a layer to be finished. So if you have um, a couple different slicer programs out there will allow you to actually adjust the speed of the print itself per layer time. Um, that is a very, very crucial, um, you know, uh, setting to really dial in. If you're having print issues, um, then, you know, those adhesion issues, those print issues for quality's sake, take a look at the amount of time that you're taking per layer. Um, and it's got to be directly related to, you know, that circumference um, all the way around of that layer. So taking a look at the particular speed. Um, speed is going to be based on, again, your material choice percentage, um, material choice your, um, the actual temperature that you're printing at, the percentage of cooling, I meant to say, um, that you can actually cool that material at. So speed is a big factor. If you're having troubles printing, slow the print down. Slow the print down until you get some really nice prints and then incrementally speed it up from there. And again, you might have to adjust some temperature settings, you know, maybe lowering the temperature by five or 10 degrees or increasing the cooling by five or 10% if you want to try to increase the speed of your printing. Now, very, um, very integral of it all, uh, making sure that your part is actually adhered to the bed surface. You know, there's definitely um, a lot of different choices when you're looking at different uh, materials sticking to other materials, right? Uh, looking at the physics and the chemistry of it, some materials just don't stick to anything but themselves. So looking looking at uh, polypropylene and copoly, you know, those materials are notoriously difficult to print simply because they only stick to themselves. So if you really want successful polypropylene and copoly printing, um, you're going to have to use some very specific solutions such as PP prints, um, you know, bed surface, um, or for their particular polypropylene, um, or you're looking at maybe build tack with some build tack polypropylene bond adhesive. Um, it's that kind of glue stick adhesive that will you'll put onto the build tack itself, um, and then print directly over the top of that. Um, you know that's going to need more of that polypro polypro bond adhesive every couple prints because that's then torn up with the print. Uh, after the fact. So, you know, some things to consider when you're trying to um, have a streamlined solution, or if you don't mind, you know, really taking the time to clean the bed and have some time in between prints, um, you know, maybe doing that kind of glue stick method or polypropylene bond method, 
is just fine and simple for you. And it's great. You know, it does work great. If we're looking at some other materials, PETG, um, you know, if you're not printing with a build tack surface or something similar, um, like a Magigoo stick or um, just a general Elmer's disappearing purple glue stick. I uh, can't tell you how many, um, you know, tens or even maybe a couple hundred of those at this point we've gone through. Uh, for certain printers, certain materials, PLA, PETG works really well, TPUs as well. Um, you know, just being able to clean off the bed very easily with just some warm water, um, you know, and getting that uh, residue of glue back up off of the plate after you've had a successful print is just as easy sometimes as throwing on a, a build tack surface or something else to go with it. So, you know, glue stick could be your best friend. I'd always have one around. Um, if you're looking into different materials that are just having a really tough time, you know, sticking to the surface, then looking at build tack and some other additional uh, adhesive is definitely worthwhile. Um, another thing we've found actually with bed adhesion and polypropylene reducing the warping actually, uh, because polypro and copoly shrinks as it cools just slightly. Um, and as it shrinks, it tends to warp up off of the plate. So um, one thing that we found really helps with mitigating some warping is one, either a very wide brim, um, that one layer of a brim, um, if it's really bonded well to your part, can really help solve some of those issues. Um, but also having a raft and having a wide raft um, could absolutely help um, you know, where you're, you could eventually, once the raft is printed, then um, put tape down over the raft, over the sides of the raft, so that you are adhering the raft to the bed, the tape is holding the raft down, and the raft is connected to your part. Um, that's been a, you know, kind of, um, kind of haphazard way for us to help mitigate some warping, but it works. Um, you know, just taking some blue painter's tape or, um, you know, just regular tape, packaging tape and holding down that, that raft or that brim can help again to mitigate some warping. Um, so now that you may have gotten your, you know, your part to actually adhere to the bed, um, sometimes also squishing that first layer a little bit, you know, um, having a either increased um, extrusion uh, percentage line width, um, you know, or having a smaller layer height will help um, that material squish to that first layer. Obviously, again, you could have a little bit of a Z offset initially to, um, you know, squish that first layer. You know, going down um, in negative Z offsets is sometimes necessary. You know, we've got some printers running with a negative 0.2 offset. Um, you know, the offset is kind of built into the configuration file initially with the printer. Um, but we found with, you know, so many different materials that we're printing, so many bed surfaces that we're putting on our printers, um, sometimes it's just easier to adjust that Z offset in order to get that first layer really, really bonded well. Um, so that's just a couple, you know, little troubleshooting things that you can do. Initially, you might have to, you know, start and stop a couple prints watch that first layer, first two layers actually go down on the bed itself. And then, you know, adjust your Z offsets 
um, or a couple other settings in order to get that first layer to bond really well. Um, but again, yeah, now that you've had your, your part bond to the surface really well, um, we can get into some part removal. So utilizing a spatula, um, you know, obviously is a really nice tool, a thin spatula, metal spatula, um, to be able to get up underneath your part. Now, different materials are going to come off of the bed a little bit differently. So take PETG or PLA, for instance. Once the bed cools down, um, you know, I'd say below 50 degrees, 40 degrees Celsius, um, then you're actually um, able to just almost pick up the part off of the bed because it's come apart from the bed. Um, you know, if you have, if you let it sit there for long enough, you know, the PETG or PLA is just going to come right up off the bed itself um, and kind of warp away very, very slightly. Um, so that's, that's a consideration for PLA and PETG. Um, if you really have a lot of glue down on the bed, um, then that might not occur. So you could always heat up the bed just slightly, maybe 60, 70 degrees is plenty enough to kind of warm up those first couple layers to then get your spatula underneath um, and just be careful that you're not warping your part as you're pulling it up off of the plate. Um, you know, those, those couple things there can help you in getting the parts off the plate for PLA, PETG, sometimes TPU as well. Heating up the bed a little bit helps. Um, you know, strictly for PLA and PETG, when you have more glue, if you don't have any glue, then you really don't need to do that. You shouldn't heat it back up. Um, when we're talking about polypros and copoly, you actually have to heat up the bed to 100 degrees Celsius um, or 90 to 100 degrees Celsius and let it sit there for about 10 minutes. Um, so those first few layers warm up and then you can pull that part off, up off the plate. Um, if you've done your job right and you really have um, adhered that part to the bed, then you're not going to be able to really pull that polypro or copoly, you know, CPX up off of the plate unless you warm up the plate first. Um, so again, different considerations for different materials for part removal. Um, sometimes you're going to have support structures there that are going to be, um, you know, necessary to remove from the part after the print. So now we're kind of getting into the post-processing aspect of FDM 3D printing. Um, is your part completely flat and does it need any post-processing? You know, was there any stringing that occurred due to um, either wet filament or your retraction settings uh, were not high enough uh, or, or your cooling was not high enough? Um, are you cleaning up some stringing? Are you cleaning up some um, support structure that is within the print itself, you know, having uh, either the setting for um, touching the build plate only support or put support everywhere. Um, those two considerations are going to be pretty crucial again in figuring out what material you want to use for your support structure. If the material is the same as what you're printing, then you might have a little bit tougher time actually getting that support material off of the print because if you've really dialed in your settings to where you're getting a really nice quality surface finish um, then you're going to have that support be very close to the part itself um, it, the further away you bring the support from the part um, then you're just um, creating a little bit of space between the support and the part 
And that will help indeed with taking that part off of, or the support off of the part afterward, uh, but then you might not have as good surface quality. Um, having a material for support that can easily come off of the part afterward is extremely helpful. So we talked about the piece support from, from uh, PP Print for their polypropylene, where you simply have to heat that support material up to 100 degrees C um, or just in boiling water. So if you have just a pot on your stove at home, you can dunk that part into the pot at 100 degrees C and let the material warm up for a couple minutes. Um, then you can easily pull that support material off of the part like chewing gum. Um, it's kind of gets into this, uh, not so much sticky sense, but more of just like a rubbery sense when it's heated up to that temperature. And the polypropylene itself is not affected. Um, if you do leave the polypropylene in there long enough, then you could have some um, you know, warpage or change in shape of your part if your part is thin enough. Um, so that's a consideration. Don't keep it in there too long because um, you might heat up the polypropylene itself too much afterward. Um, there's also PVA. PVA is a water-soluble material. Um, can be used for a support structure where you then um, dissolve the PVA in a water bath after the print. Um, you know, we haven't done as much printing with PVA uh, here at Ascent Fabrication, but um, printing with the, the polypropylene is something we do all the time, and using that support material from PP Print has been extremely helpful in some uh, more intricate prints that we're getting. So, you know, that's going to be consideration for um, your, your post-processing, the support removal. Um, another consideration that we've seen work extremely well with uh, trying to create more robust prints would be um, annealing a print afterwards, actually heating up that part um, and reducing those physical stresses that are put into the part itself as it's printed. So at a very uh, micro level, at the physics and chemistry level of certain materials like polycarbonate, um, copoly and polypropylene, um, you really want to anneal those parts afterwards, and there are specific amounts of time and temperatures that you can anneal those parts at uh, in order to help reduce those stresses from bringing a solid plastic into a melted form into a solid form again very rapidly. Um, there are some high physical stresses that are put into your parts um, that can affect that inner, inner layer bonding. So what we do um, is actually just take a torch um, and very quickly and lightly kind of heat up those layers in certain areas for some of our prints that we know are areas of high stress. Um, and we're doing some kind of like spot annealing there um, just because we uh, particularly don't have an oven here ourselves to be able to fully uh, anneal a print yet. Um, you know, we're taking advantage of just using a um, a torch, a flammable torch to, um, to the part itself and not actually getting it to the point where the material is too hot and then that, that structure is collapsing, but just past that glass transition temperature where your uh, part is going to be a little bit more shiny, uh, starts to almost get, um, you know, kind of a more clear, less opaque color to it. 
you know, almost a wet appearance. That's kind of what you're looking for when you're spot annealing. Um, for our prosthetic sockets, that's exactly what we do in the posterior section um, at the trim lines, because that's a high stress point as well as the full distal end. Um, so for any of our devices that are be being printed that way, we strongly, strongly, strongly suggest that you um, anneal those devices afterward. Um, so, you know, annealing, um, once you get into kind of the more industrial style 3D printing as well, multi-jet fusion MJF or selective laser sintering SLS with some materials like PA11 or PA12 nylon um, or even TPU and polypropylene for that matter, um, you're actually, you could go a couple steps further where you either um, bead blast or, or tumble some parts to get kind of some of that surface roughness off of it. But then you can go one step further and do vapor smoothing. So vapor smoothing, you're actually using a chemical vapor that is melting those layers um, and smoothing out the surface. And in some cases, actually helping to increase the um, structural integrity layer by layer, that interlayer bonding by doing the vapor smoothing. Um, but primarily you're really just getting that, that high quality you know, injection molding look into your part. Um, when we're talking about MJF or SLS printing, it definitely makes sense to vapor smooth your part. You're also creating a watertight and airtight environment um, that can be beneficial for several reasons for your part. Um, and then it, and then of course having that, you know, surface finish. So vapor smoothing is um, highly attributable, attributable to that type of printing um, when we talk about FDM, 3D printing, and vapor smoothing, I've gotten this question a few times now over the past couple months. Um, in my opinion, right now, it just doesn't make sense to be able to FDM, uh, through FDM printing, go ahead and vapor smooth those afterwards because um, unless you're using something like ABS and then you can vapor smooth it with acetone, um, you know, and, and there's a couple commercial um low end vapor smoothing, um, you know, pieces of equipment that will do that, uh, unless you're using that specific material, you know, turning a liquid into a vapor and then having a heated chamber where, it, where you put your part into that the chamber is even big enough for your part, really. Um, that's half the battle sometimes is having that large chamber to be able to put your part into, um, you know, that's a consideration for, whether or not you can even vapor smooth an FDM print. Now, with the very, you know, rather low cost of FDM 3D printing, I would really err on the side of thinking, well, is it even worth the cost to vapor smooth an FDM part? Um, depending on what that part is, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, you know, you're probably looking at, you know, somewhere in the range of $30,000 to $60,000 for a high-end industrial vapor smoothing machine, um, something like the AMT PostPro. Um, you know, you're really looking to get those high-quality um, surface finish prints. However, you know, at what cost? Um, if you're doing FDM printing and MJF or SLS together, and you have all this capital to be able to put towards a vapor smoothing machine, then sure, why not put some FDM prints that are the, of the same material as what you're printing for MJF possibly, and maybe try to vapor smooth those parts. Um, 
you know, I think that's one area that uh, the 3D printing industry has kind of lagged a little bit in. And I believe that over the next couple of years, we'll start to see some vapor smoothing um, equipment start to emerge uh, for FDM style printing. Um, we have seen a couple like hobbyist style throw together pieces of equipment that people have tried to, um, you know, vapor smooth their FDM parts, whether it's PLA or TPU or PETG. Um, and it's all about just finding that right chemical, you know, finding the right chemical, understanding the chemistry of what you're doing with that liquid that you're turning into a vapor that you're then melting another plastic with. There's a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics that goes on with that. Um, having the right equipment and the right space with for the job is extremely uh, necessary when you want to do that sort of thing. Um, you have to think about the vapors that are coming off of that. Are those vapors in some way toxic? Um, could those vapors be you know, harmful for your health? Are you in a well-ventilated area? Um, are you even outside possibly? Or do you have a fume hood? Um, you know, are you doing that vapor smoothing under a fume hood? And then that, those fumes are pumped into the air outside or through a filtration system. You know, again, there's uh, a lot of considerations for why vapor smoothing is beneficial. However, for FDM 3D printed parts right now, honestly, at this point, there isn't a very good solution for a wide range of materials that makes it worth, um, you know, going down that path. But I think that's one area that could really benefit from the consumer level 3D printing. Um, if you're looking at other printing methods like SLA, um, where you are curing a resin um, with, uh, with UV light um, or some other thermal curing process, right? If you're using some kind of resin, you can get extremely nice surface finished prints. Um, and then again, at what cost, you know, are those, are those printers a little bit more costly? Um, determining factors also would be the structural integrity of those parts. Um, UV cured parts are going to continue to cure over time and continue to get more brittle. Um, so those are some considerations on um, doing that kind of 3D printing as well. Um, but for, again, the main focus of FDM best practices today on Fabrication Friday, we looked over some printer choices, material choices, um, specific techniques for design for additive manufacturing, you definitely want to design your parts to be specifically compatible with your entire printing setup. Uh, different nozzle sizes, different layer heights, different extrusion widths, overlap percentages, temperatures and cooling, speeds, bed adhesion, part removal, and post-processing. Guys, I hope that was uh, a little helpful and informative for you today. Thank you for taking the chance um, and uh, you know, listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you want to learn more, you're more than welcome to reach out to us at Ascent Fabrication and uh, in future episodes of the podcast here. I hope you'll learn some more. So thank you very much. Happy Fabrication Friday. Have a great weekend, folks. 